you take for granted the steady beat of your own heart, chances are you haven't needed the services of a world-class cardiologist. Do you know what that is, Charles? No, no, I don't. It sounds a little different than the first one. Yeah, that's the sound of a heart that's beating incorrectly. It's out of sync. More than 450,000 people a year are hospitalized in the U.S. with atrial fibrillation, the most common kind of heart arrhythmia. And over 150,000 people a year die from AFib-related issues. On this month's episode, we're going to learn a lot about the heart and how a local rock star cardiac electrophysiologist is using the latest high-tech methods, collaborative leadership, and a deep compassion to heal hearts and people. Welcome to the Prescott Woman Podcast, the monthly audio companion to Prescott Woman Magazine. We're your hosts, Kelly Roberge and Charles Matthews. We're a curious couple exploring the rich array of talent, personality, engagement that we find here in the Quad Cities. We dive deeper with the people featured in the pages of Prescott Woman Magazine, discovering more about how they are working to make our community better. And healthier in this case. Mm-hmm. This month we get to spend an hour with a woman who is a smart and accomplished cardiac physician, but what we came away with was this unshakable sense of her incredibly powerful love and compassion as a healer, family member, and leader in our community. Dr. Nisha Tung is a cardiac electrophysiologist, a self-described electrician of the heart, and she's at Yavapai Regional Medical Center right here in Prescott in the Quad Cities. She went to med school in India and did residencies in North Dakota and Indiana before landing her first choice fellowship at the Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale and then another fellowship at UCLA. She was recruited by YRMC to develop this state-of-the-art cardiology program and facility that opened in August 2015. She's a long way from her native India, and Dr. Tung tells us about the grit it took for her to get here, the joy her work and her patients bring her, and what community means to her. We find out what a cardiac electrophysiologist actually is, and take a bit of a dive into the technical side of modern heart medicine. We also find out what kind of little girl Dr. Tung was, and how both family tragedy and family traditions have influenced the path of her career. Stay tuned until the end of this episode for a slightly emotional moment and for a critical heart health tip for women. All right, let's Let's get get local. local. Welcome, everybody, to the Prescott Woman Podcast. And we're here with Dr. Tung from the Yavapai Regional Medical Center. And our just our first question is, what does an electrophysiologist do? Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for having me on the show. So electrophysiology is a broad terminology, but it simply means a heart electrician. So mm. I deal with the electrical wiring of the heart and any conditions that can be pertaining to, to that. That's fascinating. Yeah. Just for anybody who you know wasn't paying attention in high school biology, why are there electrical wires in the heart? What's that about? We hear that so the, the heart, heart is a muscle. We don't hear that it's an electrical device. That's true. So the heart has multiple aspects to it. The first part is contractility. That means the heart function. Then there's the plumbing, which are the coronary arteries that we hear about people having heart attacks and going in for stents or balloons to be placed or open heart surgery. 
And then the third thing is the electrical part that makes the heart conduct from one signal to another signal so that the heartbeat can go through so we can have a heartbeat. So when we check our pulse and we say our pulse is 60 or 70 beats a minute, it's because of the electrical wiring of the heart. That then correlates with the other functions, that is the contractility at the heart beats. It creates an impulse and that impulse causes the muscle to contract. And that's how the whole heart function exists. Right. And then the timing is really important, right? Because there's all these different chambers in the heart and they have to, they have the timing of their contractions has to be accurate and consistent, right? That's true. The heart is broken down into four chambers, two top chambers called the atria, two bottom chambers called the ventricles. And the normal pacemaker that we all are born with sits in the right upper chamber of the heart. That's where all the electrical impulses start with on the right upper chamber. And from there, the heartbeat goes to both the upper chambers, then goes through the electrical wiring to what is called the AV node or the gatekeeper between the top and the bottom chambers. And then the electrical circuit goes down to the bottom chambers. So when you feel your pulse, I always tell my patients, it's the bottom chamber that we feel, not the top chamber. And when we're in normal rhythm, the top and the bottom are beating one to one. Aha. Right. In the right order. That's right. <laughs> right. And can it get in the wrong order? It can happen in the wrong order. So that's where we can have bad rhythm in the bottom chamber that could be life threatening called ventricular tachycardia. And that's where I get involved to go in and treat them with medications or put a defibrillator in or do an ablation for ventricular tachycardia to get rid of those abnormal circuits because we don't want that happening. Great. Great. And we're looking forward, I'm really looking forward to later in this interview for you to describe, you know, the, the new ways that you're being able to do these procedures with, with minimal invasive surgery. It's, I think it's really fascinating. Um, I think people are going to be really excited to, to kind of hear about that. But um, do you want to ask the next the Sure. Question, yeah. We're, a li- we're curious about you and your journey. And if you had a, had a moment that you knew you wanted to be a doctor. (laughs) Well, when I was really young, I wanted to be a gymnast. Oh, wow. But but I was so bad. I was not flexible at all. (laughs) That that dream of mine died pretty soon. I was, my dad was a polo player in the Indian army. He was a national polo player. I loved horses. So I wanted to be a horse rider, but my pony ran away with me when I was little young. Oh no. So so there's, I mean, a few things I wanted to do when I was very tiny, but as I grew older, my family is full of physicians or from the armed forces. I belong uh, from the north part of India. And all I knew was being in the armed forces or having my uncles and aunts when I was younger going to the hospital to visit them. So I wanted to be a doctor in the army. And is that so, what happened? No, unfortunately, I did not. I tried, but my eyesight was a little bit weak mm. and they were very strict about the cutoff point where you could get into the army. So I ended up being a physician, but not in the army. Oh, wow. You know, <laughs> entre- entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley, you know, big wigs talk about the importance of failure. You got to keep failing <laughs> until, <laughs> until you hit the big idea. Is So it sounds like... Uh, you weren't able to be a gymnast, weren't able to be in the army. Your pony, your pony ran away with you. My pony ran away with me. Yes. <laughs> can you, can you tell more about that story? That's, that that, raises that a sounds lot of like questions. an adventure. <laughs> so 
I was, they called me the red riding hood. I was all dressed in red. I was sitting on my pony and there was a airfield strip right next close by. So my dad was riding, I was riding and suddenly the pony decided to take off. And all they saw was this little tiny little thing. I was three, three and a half years old. I clung onto the pony, didn't fall off. And it went all the way to the strip, which was very slippery. So they felt that the pony, because the pony was a little pony, would slip and fall and I would definitely fall. But the pony and I both stick, stuck together till somebody came and got us. So that was my story about my runaway pony story. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so were you afraid after that or? or? No, I, I love horses, but that, that's different. Yeah. <laughs> but that was not the profession finally. No. Oh no. my. Right. No. But it sounds like uh, I'm I'm guessing the tenacity and and grit that that little three year old girl had to hang on to that pony is still is still working in you these days. That is true. Very true. Well, it's a great segue. I'm just I'm really curious. What was the biggest challenge that you had to overcome on the way to being this star physician at uh, YRMC? Well, you know when you have. Um, goal in mind. You just keep plugging away. I have had a few hardships in life and it wasn't an easy road. Coming to the U.S. was not easy. I think the U.S. Embassy and the Canadian Embassy probably knew me by my first name because every six months I would go and I would get a stamp no as a no on my passport because I was an unmarried female physician. I finally, after three years, decided to get married uh, so I tell my husband, my name is hyphenated. It's tongue hyphen tacker. So I only go back to Dr. Tongue. And when pe- my patients ask me, what's the other part of your name? I say, oh, that's just my uh, entry into the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the big hardship of coming to the U.S. is getting the visa, mm-hmm. uh, being unmarried. And then being a foreign grad female foreign grad trying to go into cardiology, it's pretty difficult because you need to have a ton of research. And I think I just lucked out. Mm. I think um, I still remember my first interview was with Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale. So my sister, who's a nephrologist, two years older than me, she said, there's no way I could get into cardiology. And she was always worried about me because we just two of us. And she would feel like if my my dreams were shattered, I wouldn't be able to take it and she would not be able to see me hurt. So she told me, forget about cardiology and Mayo is the last place you'll ever get into. And then that's the day I told her, I said, that's the place I'm going to go into now because I got my first interview there. So I still remember now this is a, uh, my program director was, you know, things just have not go right. My flight got delayed. I just barely made it there after five hours of overlay. I got into Phoenix and my interview was supposed to start at six. I landed at three in the morning. Oh. I was supposed to be there at 10 at night. And I was like, oh my God, this is a bad start. So I barely made it to the uh, hotel. And at that time, 101 was not even existent. They were still um, constructing that. So it took me forever to get to Scottsdale from Phoenix. And I literally ironed my clothes, closed my eyes, woke up, took a shower, and I was ready to get up and get going for my interview at 6 in the morning. Got there, and the first question, my program director at that time, very fine gentleman, I, I mean, he's my, one of my mentors. He's no longer, he passed away. 
Um, so he asked me, what do you want to do when you're done with cardiology? And right out of my mouth comes, I want to be an interventional cardiologist, the plumber, not the electrician, right? <laughs> so, so he goes, really? Do you know how difficult that is for a female physician to go into that field? You're going to be under fluoroscopy. You have to be leaded all day, wearing heavy lead for surgeries because procedures because of the uh, radiation exposure. And then the next question he asked me, do you have any kids? Are you married? I felt that was a little too personal. So I just looked at him and go, that's a very personal question. That's between me and my husband, what we decide. None for me to answer to you right now just during this interview. And I didn't think twice. I just said it because I was so upset because, you know, we grow up in India, females versus men, and you were always suppressed. So it's like, can't be. I came to the U.S. You can't do that to me here. So <laughs> after I was done interviewing, my sister calls me. She goes, how was your interview? I was like, he asked me this question. And she goes, oh, 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 knowing how I was. She goes, and what did you say? So it's like, I was upset. I would let him know I was upset with his question. So I thought I would never get into the fellowship there. Guess what? It was a matching pro. It's not like you just go in and you interview and they select you right there and then they do it uh, through the whole U.S. And they see who, after all the interviews, thousands of people who come or hundreds that come and interview, then then choose the first few that they like. And I got it there. And he was the one who picked up the phone and called me and said, I have never seen anybody who had so much passion as you do for the field that you're joining. So you, you blew me away with your answer. So I was like, oh, great. <laughs> I, I was lucky. Otherwise, most people would have just said hell with you out the door. Yeah. What'd your sister say? My sister was pretty surprised. She was crying. <laughs> <laughs> I'll show you. <laughs> so that was my cardiology. And then well, just I had before, a Before we move on, I think, I think there's, you used the word luck twice, Dr. Oh. Todd. And, and what I'm hearing is a persistence. You talked about being, you know, being on a first name basis with everybody at the, at the consulate and just that <laughs> persistence of being there time after time to say, I want to do this. I want to do this. I want to do this. And then you showed that, that passion and that, um, backbone mm -hmm. in that interview. That doesn't, that doesn't Confidence. sound like, yeah, 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 yeah. That doesn't sound like luck. That sounds like, that sounds like a steely spine and determination. Well, that with God's grace. Mm. Is if he's there with you, you get what you want. If he's not there with you, I don't think anything helps. So I really believe in the Almighty and him standing right next to me for all these crazy times of mine. <laughs> mm, gotcha. Gotcha. It's good to have help, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> right. Well, I've seen, I've seen pictures of your operating theater. I think it's the hybrid lab and the, the new catheterization lab. And it looks like, it looks like something from Star Trek. I mean, there's these big, there's these, well, it does. There's these huge imaging machines right over the operating table and massive flat screen monitors in, in multiple corners and computers everywhere. I mean, there's not, it does not look like what most of us think of as an operating room. It looks like, yes. it looks like a starship. And I'm just, I'm just curious what it's like. Can you describe that, that operating theater a little bit more? So the cat labs and the electrophysiology labs are a little bit different. Um, I'm blessed to be here at YMC. They built an excellent suite for the electrophysiology program when I came here in 2015. Um, 
we have a lot of equipment. So catheterization labs don't require so much equipment because they are using fluoroscopy at the most and some integrated system like trying to get the CAT scans onto the fluoroscopy or ultrasound onto fluoroscopy. Can you just describe I was going to say yeah, fluoroscopy yeah. really quickly for those of us. Sure. Yeah. So what we do is we put special catheters into the heart. So we go into the artery and shoot contrast and look under x-ray. So to get a roadmap and see where this clogging or blockages in the arteries. And then, then they go and put the stent. So for all that, they have to be under x-ray. So this is specialized x-rays. It's called fluoroscopy. And it's very magnified. And, those, and those, are, those are available in real time. You're actually able to watch what you're That's doing right. with the with the uh, with the stent and all the tools yeah and is the contrast is that um like a liquid or something that shows That's how it's true. flowing or not flowing through That's the right. heart yes. okay yes yes so electrophysiology is different depending on what we are doing so we have multiple so i look at fluoroscopy i look at hemodynamics that the blood pressures the arterial pressure waveforms i look at three-dimensional mapping. So I put a catheter into the heart and we can do a three-dimensional map of the heart of that chamber that I'm putting my catheters in. So fluoroscopy is just two views, whereas mm. three-dimensional is three, it's a three-dimensional aspect. So we do that. And then I look at the signals. So, you know, when we go into a doctor's office and they do an electrocardiogram or an EKG, they look at the heart electrical signals by putting electrodes on the chest cavity, the chest wall. Here I put special catheters that have electrodes on the tip of the catheter that can record signals from directly inside the heart. So wow. that's called yeah, so that's called intracardiac electrogram. So when I'm doing a procedure, I'm looking at eight or nine monitors. Woo. And then I'm also doing ultrasound sometimes for certain cases. So I have intracardiac. So I put a catheter from the groin, from the vessel all the way into the heart, and I can look at the ultrasound of the heart by putting this ultrasound catheter inside the heart. So these are the things that I look at. So there's so much equipment that we have in electrophysiology. But when you come into the room, to the hybrid OR where all the equipment is, you will not even believe there's so much equipment because everything, the way we set it up, it's all hardwired. So everything goes all the way up into the ceiling through these special booms, which are sitting at the edge of the bed of the table. And everything is wired in. It goes wired from the roof all the way down to another set of equipment from there all the way back into the control room to all the big, big equipment that is running all our equipment. So, so is there like an not, army of nerds in that room taking care of everything and making sure all the machines keep working and the programs keep running? That is true. So I have specialized staff who can, uh, nobody can come in and just work in the electrophysiology room with all that equipment, they have to be trained because they have to troubleshoot if the equipment doesn't work. And then it's it's a ton of work. Have you so, ever had that happen when you are in the middle of an operation or a procedure with somebody? Have the, have the computers go down or something crazy like that happen? No, luckily, no, the computers won't go down. But we sometimes do have equipment troubleshooting that we have to do because... Mm -hmm things are not set up right, or there may be a misfiring in the electrical mm -hmm. system. And we have to sometimes take care of that. And, you know, everything is man-made. So like cars can break down, your refrigerator can break down, and right. equipment can break down too. So we have had cases where we were in a procedure 
And then we had to get onto the phone with tech support to figure out how to get this equipment up and running because there's a patient on the table under anesthesia. Quick like. That takes nerves of steel. (laughs) You know, I think about one of of my first memories as a a child of of understanding medicine. There was um, PBS, the public broadcasting station, broadcast, I want to say in 1974, 73, an open heart surgery from, it might have been Mayo, it was from somewhere in Phoenix. It was the first broadcast open heart surgery. And it was just violent. You know, there was this big, long incision and then the bone saw cutting through the sternum and the spreaders, you know, pulling that. I just, you know, not all of us, not all. I was, I think I was nine. Some of the adults were were looking away and horrified. And, you know, what you're doing now and what YRMC is able to do all through that little incision in the, in the groin to, to, and then you get this. 3D image the heart like you're like you can be inside of there even though you're you've just got these tiny instruments going in it's just it's just fascinating and it seems like just a different a really different kind of medicine like 22nd century medicine it's fascinating and yeah what's the recovery time like the difference in recovery between what he just described and what you guys are able to do now so the recovery is pretty straightforward um, for patients who are playing golf or like to ride horses or like to play pickleball <laughs> and tennis <laughs> or lift weights, they do understand they have five to seven days of restriction. So basic restrictions are from the ablation procedures because there is no incision. It's just like putting an IV in, the gro- in your arm. We put bigger IVs in the groin, multiple IVs, both sides or one side of the groin. And the biggest restriction is you don't want that to bleed. So you don't want to be doing lifting or yard work for the first few days or ab workout or going out and playing tennis or golf or swinging a golf club. Patients are very unhappy about this. Like, oh, my God, I just did a humongous procedure on your heart. This is the smallest restriction I can know. They love it. For a few days. I I think you can be okay. Yeah, Yeah, old school. It had to be weeks and weeks. I mean, yes. But wow. when I put a pacemaker or a defibrillator or a cardiac resynchronization device that is called biventricular defibrillator or a pacemaker, then they have six weeks mm. of left arm restrictions or whichever side the arm is affected where the device is implanted, that arm restrictions for six weeks because you don't want those wires or leads that I put into the heart to get dislodged. Mm. So those are six weeks, but they can do everything else other than left arm restrictions. So does that mean like the, the f- tissue has to f- heal around those wires and hold them That's in place? Right. Okay. That's true. So the leads that we put into the heart, they have a tiny little screw. I mean, I show them to the medical students and the nursing students who come in or the, um, you know, paramedic students who come to watch these cases sometimes when they're training and we just have them come into the lab. So I say, look at how small the screw is that holds this whole wire or the lead into the heart. And they say, oh my God, now we understand why when we pick up patients and they say, Dr. Tang or so-and-so did this procedure, I have to keep the sling on. It's very important because there has to be tissue growth around those leads. It takes about six to eight weeks for tissue to grow around so it stays in place. Mm. So that's a very concrete example of you acting as an electrician, literally literally <laughs> wiring something together through the arm into the heart. <laughs> that's true. Excellent. Thank you so much for for describing what you do. And like I said, it, it's uh, you know so far I know that my heart is relatively healthy, but it's just really nice knowing that uh, 
there's at least a chance that I don't have to get cracked open Ugh. that, uh, that, that there's an electrician, you know, on the job, ready, mm-hmm. ready to go with all of that technology. Yeah, if, if we can stay healthy for another 10 years, then there will be even more options for us. <laughs> so Dr. Tung in the, in the Prescott women article, and and in some other and in the I think the press release about you being joining YRMC back in 2015, you used you used two words. You used the word joy and you used the word love. You said I feel so much joy working at YRMC, and you talked about how much love you have for your work and your patients. And I'm just curious, um, what is it that what is it that gives you so much joy about being at YRMC? Well, the biggest thing, I came from Phoenix and uh, coming from a metropolitan city to a small community hospital, it's a big difference. And for the kind of work I provide, you need the support, you need everything. And I wasn't sure that would be provided here. But when I came here and I interviewed and they reached out to me because I was coming here for three years prior as a private practitioner from my own practice, to see patients here because we didn't have the equipment. We didn't have the ability to do anything here. I would come see the patients and then take them down to Phoenix for procedures. Um, The joy that I felt about YRMC was the administration was very interested in patient care and working with a physician. Most administrators are different in bigger institutions. You don't even know who the CEO is. You've never met them face-to-face. You cannot even get into their office. Here I could talk to the CEO. The CEO would call me and ask me. He wanted to get educated about the program, uh, what kind of equipment I needed. He wanted to come and look at the equipment. You know, this was a very hands-on rather than we don't know what you do. We don't know what you do, but we want to know what you do so we can help you do what you do better. And that made the big difference. Does that answer your question? That's a lovely answer. Well, and it sounds like you found some community at the hospital. So when I was coming here and commuting the first year, um, I wanted to make sure this was the right thing. Uh, my husband had a job in Phoenix. I have some home situation. My sister is disabled now, the nephrologist I talked about. Mm-hmm. She did. So she had had cardiac arrest and severe brain damage. That's why I switched from plumbing to electric, mm-hmm. electrical work. So things were a little topsy-turvy in my life. And I just wanted to make sure if I relocate my whole family that I'm doing the right thing. So I commuted for the first year and the institution, the administration was absolutely fine. They said not, I mean, I could speak to them one-on-one and ask them and let them know my fears and they understood it, which meant a lot to me. So when I was commuting, yeah, there were some long days. My patients somehow knew that I was commuting from Phoenix and they were so kind. They would say, Dr. Tang, if you ever feel you cannot drive back because it's too late, please call us. This is our number. And we would love to have you stay at our place. Mm-hmm. Not one. Which community does that? It is so amazing. The patients are so grateful for the for the work that we do here. Uh, you don't get that. I, I trained in LA. They demand that. That I'm, you know, the physician-patient relationship is not the same in every community. And here it makes a big difference. It makes me want to do more and more and more for them because it's just like they're my family. 
So how has it been for you and your family to move once you did decide to move to Prescott? How has it been for you and your family? Very nice. Um, I think it's been a very good move. I had to have caregivers. So this is a whole community. It's not just working in the hospital. It's a small community here. And I was not used to small community. Um, But I reached out in that one year when I was traveling or commuting, I tried to reach out for home care, home health care for my sister, uh, because that's what we had. We had a very good system in Phoenix because you have more health, more people, you know, the population is bigger, so you can get all that. So when I came and interviewed certain uh, caregiving companies, it was amazing the response I got. I could tell them what I needed, what I was looking for, and they were very honest, we can't help you with this, but so, this company could help. So I interviewed like four or five companies and I got the best, uh, the company that was perfect for my sister's care and they provide the best care possible. So I can go to work and I know she's taken care of at home. Mm. And that means a lot because if I can't have trustworthy help at home for my sister, how can I take care of my patients? Absolutely. Right. Right, so the community is helping you take care of your sister and you're helping take care of the community. It's sort of an, an interwoven system, isn't it? That is true. Mm. Well, thanks so much. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more with Dr. Tun on the Prescott Woman Podcast. The team at Prescott Woman Magazine shows its dedication to this community in all the ways. They cover local stories, feature local businesses, trumpet local leadership, champion local causes, and raise money for local nonprofits. They also have gorgeous photography and provide pages and pages of value for free. This episode is the companion piece to the story, Leading with Heart, in the October-November issue of Prescott Woman Magazine. For more on Dr. Tung and YRMC, pick up the issue available now. This lifestyle and business magazine is free at locations all over town. Check the show notes to find the location nearest you or subscribe at prescottwomanmagazine.com to make sure you get your issue as soon as it comes out. Also check the show notes for Dr. Tung's full bio and for some very important resources to make sense of all this heart talk. There's a page from the CDC with animations of healthy and irregular heartbeats and another with sounds of various heart murmurs and arrhythmias. Now back to our talk with Dr. Tung. And we're back with the Prescott Woman podcast and we're here with Charles Matthews and I'm Kelly Roberge and we're here with Dr. Tung. I'm curious, Dr. Tung, how your team works together to bring about the best results for your patients. Cause I know it's a big job and it's not just a one person job. You're absolutely right. Thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, I have a very dedicated team of uh, staff that work number one in the outpatient arena because we have very busy office we see a ton of patients and to get all those patients scheduled for their office visits, then scheduled for their procedures, then for their return visits, for their device checks to run device clinics. It is unbelievable what my staff can do. 
One of my staff members actually was in my private practice as my scheduler, and she is a single mom of two daughters and had a great, great support system back in Phoenix uh, with her family there. She decided to move up here, commuted for the first year with me, and then decided to move her two kids and herself just to be able to continue working with me. Wow. So she's the backbone. I have a wonderful nurse. Um, she is amazing. Sometimes she's too good for me. Every patient's call has to be answered in a timely fashion. Everything that she does not understand has to be answered so she can then talk to the patient and give them a reasonable answer. And she has to get satisfied before she can pick up the phone and call the patient. It is amazing. I mean, I have my health assistant who I call her my auntie and she calls me her niece. She and I both have dark hair and the patients get confused when they see us in, in our face masks because she does not look her age. She looks younger. She has better complexion and better skin tone than I do. So she amazes me with her ability to continue working. My PA, oh, adorable. His name is Guy. And my patients don't have a problem if some days I'm not available to talk to them. They say, oh, if Guy can answer our questions, Guy is Dr. Tang's right hand. And if he says something, it's because Dr. Tang is saying so. So, you know, there's a lot of trust factor that comes mm -hmm. from that. I work with two awesome staff members in the hospital, in the electrophysiology lab. My nurse is phenomenal. I keep, you know, it's, there's a joke that goes on because I always say, oh my God, you're the best nurse I've ever had. So we laugh about that because as soon as I say that, the other person gets a little jealous. <laughs> my tech, extra tech who moved from Boswell, she'd been there for 11 years. She moved just to come here to work with me. She has 13, 14 now years of experience. And she's the one who troubleshoots through everything. She's my backbone in the lab because if she's not there, I don't think I can function. I have anesthesiologists who from day one asked me, sat me down and said, what are your requirements? Because we would like to help you with what you need since you're coming here and we don't know what you do. I train, there are 13 of them in that group and each one of them has a different personality, but they, it is, it is just like a family. You know, you work for 13, 14, 16 hours a day sometimes, and you're stuck with all these people in one room. Either you get along or you don't get along. So you make your, your decision what you want to do with these people. And they are, we laugh, joke, we do lots of hard work. But at the end of the day, it's a great day because patients are taken care of. They never complain because they know there's something good being done. Patients have been taken care of in this institution. Mm. So I'm blessed. Wow, it sounds like Prescott is blessed to have such an amazing team of people who can work so well together and get the egos out of the way and do what needs to be done to take good care of people. I have the best support, the floor nurses, the intensive care. I just can't say enough about how grateful I am for this place to do what they do to take such great care of the patients because patient care doesn't start and end at me. It starts from my office from the first phone call that the patient receives to schedule an appointment, to being brought in here to the people who see them in the admitting, then in the pre-op area, every little step has makes a difference to these patients. So my Absolutely. work gets better. Yeah. Yes. So Dr. Tung, I'm, I'm curious. I, th I think this is probably a question that a lot of listeners are thinking. Cardiologists on television and in, and in real life, frankly, are famous for being egotistical. 
famous for being self-centered. Oh, he's a cardiologist. We don't need to say any more about that. What is it? Did you make a conscious choice to become a team player? You talk about all these people who, who've given up living in Phoenix, given up living elsewhere to come and be on your team. What is it that you do to create that kind of teamwork? Well, I, I think it comes back to my upbringing. Uh, my parents, I think, brought me up pretty well. And they always told me, it's not the degree that you have that makes you treat people the way or you get treated the way you get treated. It's the kind soul. You always remain humble and you always treat everybody the same. So whether it's a janitor, whether it's a CEO of the institution, for me, everybody is the same. And I have to treat everybody with a very, I, I love people. I love what I do. I love everything about life. And I always have a smile on my face, no matter how tough my day is. And I think the positive vibes, people like that. Mm -hmm. And they give that, return that back to you. It's what you give is what you get back. And I've just treated people equally well. And I feel that I'm blessed that they see that in me, that it's a soul. It's a good soul that you're working with. It's not, it's about me. It's never about me. I tell my staff, you're not working for me. You're working with me for the patient. We all are working mm. for the patient. So that's my motto. Yeah. In business, we call that servant leadership. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. You talked about humility. You talked about compassion. You talked about a po having a positive attitude. And I think those are amazing, amazing leadership qualities. And uh, hopefully more people can learn to adopt that and, and create those create those incredibly powerful teams that can take care of Take care of people. We all need more of that. True. Yeah, and I want to read. I want to put you on the spot just a little bit. I'm going to read a review that I found of you. Uh-oh. <laughs> yep, yep. Dr. Tung is by far the best doctor I ever had. She did a pacemaker upgrade on me. She saved my life on more than one occasion. What does it feel like to save somebody's life? Ooh. Oh, very gratifying. You know, I do this for a reason. I come from a family of heart disease. My grandma died in my arms when I was 16 years old. I had to break the news to my mom who was teaching. She's a teacher. So she was teaching. I had to drive over there and we didn't have cell phones. It's very hard when you have somebody who dies, somebody who's sick. I had to break the news to my parents when my sister had a cardiac arrest. They were in India and they told me that she was not going to survive. She was so critical at 31 years of age, total healthy nephrologist interviewing for a job and dropped dead. So she's still alive. Like I said, it's been 19 almost years this Thanksgiving that I've been taking care of her. Well, I, I didn't become like this just because of my family. I always had that. I used to see my uncles and aunts and I used to feel... It was so gratifying when you took the extra time to take care of a patient, to listen to their concerns, to just hold their hand, to give them a hug and tell them, I'll take good care of you. Not just saying, but doing the best you can. And I, they call me a bulldog when I'm doing procedures because when I'm chasing an arrhythmia, I know why I brought the patient on the table. It's not to make money. It's not to fill up my back pocket. I tell my patients, I can do this procedure. It will fill up my back pocket, but you don't need this procedure. They just look at me like, really? A doctor can say that? that I don't need a procedure when I was sent to you for a procedure. You have to do the right thing in life. And I work hard. If I have a complication, God forbid, 
I take it seriously. I take it to heart to the point that everybody in the room has to come and give me a hug and say, you did your best, you know. This, you know, these things can happen. But for me to accept that and say, I did wrong to somebody, I can't accept it. It takes me forever. So what do I do? Every little, small little thing, small little, even like a groin hematoma, there's bleeding, just somebody didn't hold the pressure right. I take it seriously. I have to educate myself. I have to educate the patients. I have to educate the staff and say, this cannot happen again. So yes, it's very gratifying when somebody's life is saved, when we work so hard to help somebody out. Thank you, Dr. Tom. Thank you. Oh, you're making me cry. Oh, Kelly. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm mm. so sorry. No, that's good because it's beautiful. That's oh. And we, we, we do these podcasts for these sorts of moments. Absolutely. If somebody isn't crying, we didn't do our job. <laughs> <laughs> we are not Bob, Barbara Walters, but you know. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, one, one final question that we have for you is, what is something you wish more women knew about heart health? Very good question. You know, we as women, even when I see patients with arrhythmias, it's always, oh, I thought it was anxiety because women are so busy doing everything and they get labeled. If they complain, you're just anxious. You're just having a moment. You're just having an emotional outburst. No, they need to understand that if they're having symptoms, palpitations, but most important, which is what I deal with, I have seen so many women who have had palpitations and they've had true supraventricular tachycardia, meaning the heart, there's an abnormal circuit in the heart. And they were diagnosed with depression and anxiety on multiple medications. There was, I have one, history, one story, which is really a true story. I had a young lady, she was Middle Eastern and she had four or five kids in the house and she would go into these tachycardias where her heart rate would go to 200 beats a minute. Wow. Every, and, but it would always happen with an emotional outburst. Like she was having an argument with her husband or the kid was doing something wrong and she was screaming at them and then she would go into SVT. So her husband would say, this is because you have, this is your emotions. And then ended up having her put on multiple anti-anxiety meds. There was one time that she actually passed out and the paramedics got called for the same kind of emotional outburst. Guess what she was in? Heart rate of 250 beats a minute and luckily it was caught. When I saw her in the office, she was so sure this was an emotional outbreak. This had nothing to do with arrhythmia that I had to sit and talk to her twice. Finally, she came in for her procedure. Guess what? She never had anxiety again. Interesting. Because it was not anxiety. It was all along her SVT that was being misdiagnosed. So I always tell patients, I tell patients that Learn to recognize, learn to recognize what your symptoms are. Don't let it get overplayed by emotions and say, this is just nothing. And most of us women were so busy taking care of kids, running the family, doing household work, that they don't have time for themselves. Go in, talk to your doctors, make sure that you present your symptoms and let them decide what this is rather than you self-diagnosing yourself. Mm. Dr. Tung, I think that's, that's great, empathetic, mm -hmm. compassionate advice for people to pay attention for women in particular and smart too yeah to, to pay attention to their to their bodies and to and to honor what they're feeling and not let all the other demands of life misdirect them from what's going on for them 
Well, Dr. Tung, thank you so much for spending the time with us. Thank you for your stories. Thank you for your openness and, and your compassion for your patients and for this community in general. We're so glad you are here. Yes. And I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. And what a what a wonderful idea it was for Prescott Woman Magazine to do a feature on you. I'm really glad they did so that we got to meet you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I definitely learn more about the amazing things that are happening in medicine these days. Even in our own backyard, I feel more confident that you and I stand a chance with people like Dr. Tung on the case. But again, I just keep coming back to her journey as a person and her example of how to live with such an open heart, no pun intended, an emotionally open heart and such commitment to her team, her patients, her family, and this community. She's so full of joy and love and she's so positive. I love how in the in the course of one story she can talk about how she always brings a positive attitude to work and is open enough to talk about the grief that she feels when something untoward happens to one of her patients oh and gosh, her team yes. has to give her a hug. And that's the kind of healer I want around me, someone who is open to both joy and grief, not mm. somebody who's pretending to be completely infallible and unflappable. Right. That, that's not that's not human. I don't I don't feel comfortable mm -hmm. around those kinds of folks. No, we don't want confidence at, for the sake of appearances, but not have that real compassionate heart. And we don't need to understand all those twenty five dollar words that we're flying around to really get what it means to Dr. Tung to care for people. That's something I really take away from this. And I want to do more of that. I want to do better at caring for the people in my life. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or iTunes to never miss an episode of inspirational, educational, and local stories like this one. Next month's episode will feature Diane DeLong, who took a box full of cast-off clothes and turned it into a nonprofit dedicated to lifting up the spirits of low-income kids. You can also pick up the latest copy of Prescott Woman Magazine at one of a score of locations around the Quad Cities. We'll be sure to put the link to that list of locations in the show notes. This is Charles Matthews and Kelly Robert with the Prescott Woman Podcast. Thank you so much for listening and for keeping it local. Thank you.